What a wonderful message for His grace will bring us all the way home. Amen? We are trusting in that, trusting in His sanctifying grace and His leading grace all the way to when we reach heaven's shores. Turn in your Bibles with me this morning. Let's turn together to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. We come back to our study of God's Word where we've been for a long time, a number of weeks. But it's been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We took a break, did some standalones regarding not only the the Advent season, the Christmas season, and then also last Sunday together, just looking at a theme, a verse uh, that I felt like the Lord led us to as we considered the year, the new year, the new moment that the Lord has brought us to here in 2024. Now we return back to Matthew's gospel for our third installment, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. So join me in God's word as we lay the the context as we look into it, as we get into our hearts and minds. The Word of God beginning there, Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they may ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is the word of God. Here in our passage in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is instructing his disciples about his kingdom and life in his kingdom, and more specifically, life within the body, the body of Christ, life within the local church. And he guides us now to this point, verses 15 through 18, we're right in the middle of it, of how to address sin in the life of a fellow believer. As we look at this passage today, it can be understood in two ways, in an individual way and in a corporate way. That is to say, when someone directly sins against us, that's the individual component, but then there's also the, the corporate component. That is to say, there's a member, we're members of one body here at Grace, and there is a, a member who is in sin, as defined as sinning against God's Word. They're in open sin, and they are in hardened sin. And there could be any number of examples. We'll try to give a few this morning. And so we have an obligation to that sinning brother or sister. So there's, a, there's an individual component, and there's a corporate opponent. And we'll be shifting gears this morning. At times, you'll, you'll be able to tell I'm addressing the individual component. And there, there are times, you will understand within the context, he's addressing the corporate component. We'll be shifting back and forth. So I want to say that clearly so that you understand our thinking this morning, and how we're going through the text. When it comes to problems in the church, how does biblical problem solving, what does it look like? And is there structure to guide us? 
how do we know how to go about reclaiming a brother or a sister? And as we've been seeing, these questions are not left unanswered. Here Jesus is guiding us as his disciples. He outlines for us, for those who are caught in sin or pursuing and persistent in corporate sin, individual sin, how to go about addressing it. We introduced our outline the last time together. Number one, we'll kind of frame our headings around these four main points. Number one, the purpose of discipline. Number two, the procedure, or you could say the process of discipline. Then number three, the place of discipline. And then number four, the parting of discipline. First of all, number one, the purpose of discipline. We find this in verse 15. Moreover, the text says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Here in verse 15, Jesus is answering questions that we didn't even know we had, but we have. And the question he's answering here is, is this, when should we go? When should we do this? Verse 15 tells us that when a brother, that means a brother in Christ, someone in whom we are in relationship with in Jesus Christ, we both call God our, our Father. Here Jesus modifies the personal pronoun your by letting us know that this is someone that you know. This is someone you could say in your family. Not just your literal family, but your, your faith family, your, your church family. This is someone within your sphere of influence. Now it's important to, to note that and to say that in our connected age. Uh, many people feel as, it's a, as if it's their duty to track down any and every sin out there in the evangelical Christian sphere. Now, there are some that warrant if it's a public ministry, if it's a public teacher and it's a, it's a public thing, we get that. But we're talking about, most importantly, most fundamentally, making sure we understand that Jesus wants us to go to those with whom we know, those with whom we have a relationship with, those who are under our sphere of influence. Verse 15, your brother... The word if here establishes the condition. If a Christian brother or sister has sinned against you, then we cannot do nothing. We are called, you could say, to do something. We cannot ignore the sin. We cannot be passive about the sin. And so here Jesus helps us and helps us to give a structure. Following the structure, he gives guidance on how to address Sin And again, this could be applied to our spouses and our children, our most immediate and intimate relationships, and then broadening out to those in our faith family, our church family. And we'd even, we would even broaden it enough to know maybe there's someone you work with or somebody you're a neighbor with, and they're a professing brother in Christ. They may go to a different church, but you have a relationship. They're within your sphere of influence. They may not be in your church family, but you have a, an established relationship with them. They call upon the name of Christ. If this person who is a professed Christian who professes Christ is living in sin, then this is the process we must follow. Paul also gives additional teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul gives instruction to the church. We will not spend time in 1 Corinthians 15, but that's another passage that you can take down for your notes, where he addresses the church and calls them to deal with the sinning brother in their midst. So as we come to this passage and walk through this passage, it lends itself to ask questions. The first question is, is when do we do this? Another question we could ask is this. Does it mean that every time we think we observe a sin in others that we need to go and immediately confront them? And that's a great question. And I would say, just as 
we look at the scriptures, there are some exceptions to that. Answering the question, does this mean that every time we observe a sin in someone else, notice here that we need to immediately go and confront them. Here are some biblical exceptions. When the sin is a personal wrong against you, it's directed to you, it's a personal wrong against you, and yet you are willing to love them, to forgive them, and to absorb it, to cover it, you could say. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, gives the description, the biblical description and the definition of love. And in the midst of the, the rendering and the definitions of love, Paul gives context and he says, love suffers long. And one of the things that love does not do is keep an instant record of wrongs. Some things do not warrant a public confrontation. Some things can be something that is misunderstood. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says it like this. Excuse me. Peter says it like this. Above all, have fervent love for one another. This is within the body. For love will cover a multitude of sins. We're talking about a category of offense, irritation, sin that is not a, an affront upon someone's character. This is something that is individual. It's something received. It's hard to kind of nail this aspect down. I would admit that to you. But it's something that between you and the Lord, you can forgive that brother or sister for and be a shock absorber, if you will, within the church. Let me give you some examples from practical life and ministry. With every point we have this morning, I have to be careful here to stick to my notes because we could spend all of our time on these points. But the body of Christ needs to remember that you are shock absorbers in the church. If you're looking for an offense, you'll find it every time. Every Lord's Day, from the second these doors open, there are opportunities to be offended. And I just want to gently remind all of us that most things aren't about you. We tend to over-personalize almost everything. And now, I'm not minimizing grievous sin, so please, if you come to me with an example of a gross and grievous sin, admittedly, well, depending on what it is, we would admit it. But I'm just talking about curtness. Some people, it's all they can do to get to church on time. And they, and they can't, so they come in late. But we're glad they're here. They've gotten children ready for church. They've, gotten their, they've made preparations for their elderly parents. And it's just there's lots of variables. Their husbands and wives sometimes have conversations and talks on the Lord's Day on the way to church. And they have to stop and, and to finish the point. They need to get this right. Uh, there's, there's a lunch plans, and they can't agree on those plans. You get, you get the idea, and they're like, wait a second. We're about to go in and worship God here. And we both know neither one of us are in a position to do that. Let's, let's pause and pray. We can just give tons of examples. And so when those individuals and all kinds of examples, when they come in and you say, good morning, how are you today? And they walk right by you. It could be they truly did not even, their mind is just thinking about what, they're just glad to be here. Uh, it's not about you. It's not personal. It, now, if, that, if it's that way every Sunday, then yeah, that's a problem. But what we're talking about in the sense of love suffers long, being shock absorbers in the church. In Acts chapter 6, just to give one other example just quickly, the deacons, primarily, one of their key roles is to be shock absorbers in the church. They hear the grumbling of the widows talking amongst themselves, and some think others have a higher esteem than the others. And the deacons come, well, they weren't deacons yet, but men, that this complaint comes to the apostles, and they say, what are we going to do about this? And the reality is, is much of ministry is in the minutiae. It's in the weeds. It's real. It's practical. It's tactical. It's spreadsheet. It's numbers driven. And it can just drain the lifeblood out of any leader. And so they come to them and say, here's the problem. Here's the widows. Here's the complaint. 
And so we see in Acts 6 the structure of the organization of the church beginning where the deacons begin to address those practical things. And what you could summarize it is, is this, is that they're shock absorbers. There's some things, not everything needs to come to the pastor or the elders or the leaders because people are godly. They're spirit-led and they're taking care of it. And one of the key ways they're taking care of it is that they're not easily offended. So, so we don't need to go to a person when it's something that within the realm of forgiveness, the simple, off the cuff, we're not over-personalizing, and the Lord gives grace for us to love our brother and our sister in a long-suffering way and, and to forgive them, to love them well through it. Another example would be when not to go to a brother or a sister is this, when the alleged offense does not violate Scripture. I'm going to say that again. When the alleged concern, sin, offense, does not clearly violate Scripture. That is to say, a distinction needs to be made between your preferences and your personal convictions and what Scripture clearly teaches. If you're taking notes, Romans chapter 14, the whole chapter is so helpful here in giving some principles as we think about liberty of conscience, matters of conscience, and freedom that we have in Christ. But making a distinction between you not liking that people do things differently than you, or they go about it a different way than you, but it's not clearly violating Scripture. It could be matters of dress. It could be matters of preference, places that people go. It could be matters... We could spend all of our time this morning just giving examples and examples and examples. don't think that would be helpful. But the root principle is this, making a distinction between what is sinful violation of Scripture and what is my opinion. What is your opinion? Now, if you're honest, that strikes to the core. Because all of us have personal preferences, and all of us have opinions, and when people don't do it like we do it, well, we want them to do it like we do it. And yet, we need to give room for liberty. We need to give room for disagreement, room for, pref- room for difference, room for preference, if it does not clearly violate Scripture. I have no doubt someone will want to talk about that point right there. Thirdly, another quick example of why you should not go to another brother or sister is this. When you've heard it, Secondhand. This is what I mean by this. When someone comes to you and they say, Did you know that sister so and so does this? Did you know that brother so and so went to this place? Did you know that sister so and so had a falling out with, with her sister or her mother? Did you the did you knows? Did you hear? Are you aware? I heard that. Dot dot dot. Have you heard about dot dot dot? Friends, that's what we call secondhand reports and secondhand accounts. And I'll just tell you, the elders, this is a lot of our ministry, secondhand accounts, secondhand reports. People, now hear me clearly, I'm not trying to be ugly, uh, but people who delight in bringing you a problem and yet evading and avoiding the problem that is theirs to deal with. So when should you not go to someone? You shouldn't go to someone when, when it's not your business to deal with it. But yet someone has a firsthand account, they've heard it. They've seen it, and yet they come to you as a brother and sister in Christ or as a leader in the church, and they say, have you heard? Are you aware? Did you know? The answer that you need to give right back is simply this. Have you gone to that individual and expressed your concern? Have you gone to them yourself? Don't bring me your burden and then leave it there. Now, you can come to a pastor, leader, spiritual leader, anything about anything, but a good one will send you right back to the individual so that you can do the work that God has commanded you. This is a command here in our passage that God has commanded you to do. In fact, I would say it like this. Carnal and immature people love to talk about problems. 
Again, carnal and immature people love to talk about problems, but not deal with those problems with a biblical way. Carnal Christians do that. Immature believers do that. In fact, you could summarize like this. They love to talk about people, but they do not necessarily love talking to those same people. One more time. They, they love to talk about people to others. The have you heard, did you know, da, 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 da. And that's the extent of their desire to really see resolution. But yet, they do not have that same confidence to go to the individual that, that most needs to hear it. Friends, let me just encourage us that we, that we guard our hearts in this. That we guard our hearts and not salaciously loving to spread gossip, dissension, or you could just summarize it like this, to, to talk about people. But may the Lord help us to know the difference. If I do not have it within me to be able to forgive this person, then that means I need to go to that person. Do not pride yourself on the exception point number one, whereas that the Lord gives you the grace to cover and then go tell a number of people about it. If the Lord gives you the grace to cover the offense or the sin, he'll give you the grace to just leave it with him. You take your burden not to the pastor or the teacher or your friend and leave it there. No, you take your burdens to the Lord and you leave them with him. You leave them there. So when we understand this rightly, we understand this. We understand that I don't have an obligation to deal with what I hear about second, third, or fourth hand removed. But what I do, what we do have an obligation to deal with is to send the person who has that firsthand knowledge to go to that individual, that brother, that sister. Remembering that Proverbs 18 verse 17 says this, The one who states his case first seems right. Every time the one who comes first seems right, and they may be right ultimately, but definitely they seem right because they're the first one to express it until the other comes and examines him. You know what this is called, don't you? There's always two sides to every story. One final exception, as we understand that the clear teaching of the Scriptures in the New Testament is when do we not go to a brother is simply this, when you have not repented of your own sin. And I'll just tell you, very many times, it's the same sin. The reason you're so upset about it is that you see your sin in them. And you don't like it when someone else sins in the same way that you sin and they get away with it. Or when people sin differently than you do. It may not be the quite same thing, but it stirs you up. Now you can say, Legrand, where does Scripture say that? Well, simply turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. I, I want you to turn there with me just quickly. And there's a principle in Scripture that goes like this. I am not to come to you with your sin when I have not examined myself about my own sin. If I'm living in known sin, if you're living in known sin, then the power, the authority, the, the sincerity, the conviction that we need to be able to go and lovingly talk to the brother or sister is removed, it's gone. In fact, it's called hypocrisy. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus says this, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Friend, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at a plank, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Notice what Jesus says, you are a hypocrite. Exclamation point. Hypocrite. First, Remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your, from your brother's eye. 
again and again in the teaching of both Jesus, the church, the apostles. The admonition and instruction is given that we are to have a spirit of ruthless examination on ourselves first. D.L. Moody, I think, said it like this. I have so much trouble with myself that, quite frankly, I don't have time to see the problems of my brothers and my sisters. Now, some of you are nervous, I can tell, because you think I'm avoiding and evading what Jesus teaches in our text, and I promise you I'm not. In fact, this point right here is not an excuse to simply, in a false humility, say, well, we're all sinners. We're all sinners saved by grace, so who am I? No, 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 that's not an escape route. That's not an escape hatch. But we do need to deal with our own sin. We need to have a heart of humility. We, we need to examine our hearts, and particularly, even if we think we are, before we go to a brother, before we go to a sister, we need to say, search me, O God. Try me, Psalm 139 language, to say, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way that is, that is everlasting. Father, help me not to be a hypocrite. In fact, Paul addresses this in Romans 2 in such a stern manner when he says, who are you, O man, who basically teaches and rebukes the sin of others when you are guilty of the same thing. Galatians chapter 5 would be another passage. Turn briefly with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Just very quickly, Ephesians chapter 4. The goal is that we're walking in love, harmony, and humility. This is the aim and the culture of the church. We mentioned that in message number 1. We're called to walk worthy of the Lord, Here, Ephesians 4, we're called to live in accordance with the gospel, Philippians 1. We're called to speak the truth in love. The reality is, is when we're hypocrites or we have unconfessed in our own life, we can't do it because guilt cripples genuine love for the brethren. Guilt silences our convictional mouths. The guilt of unconfessed sin gives us lockjaw. Remember what David prayed in Psalm 51? when he poured out his heart before the Lord and said, Lord, would you forgive me? He walks in a very detailed way through his sin. But do you remember the line where he says, so that I can now then, being cleansed and forgiven, now what can I do? And one of the things that he rejoices and that he's able to do is so that he can teach transgressors of the ways of the Most High God. David couldn't do that in his period of unconfessed sin. It renders him useless. That's what we're addressing. Notice Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul calls the church there in verse 1. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, follow me over to verse 25. Put away, put away therefore lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. Let no corrupt word or communication proceed out of your mouth, church, but what is good and for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Paul here gives a brief summary description of our calling to one another, the culture of life in the New Testament church, and we cannot speak the truth in love when we are living in hypocrisy, unconfessed sin. So many more passages referencing this, Romans 7, 18, Galatians 6, 5, Romans 6, 11, Romans 8, 12, Romans 14, 12. In fact, I'll just say it like this in a summary statement is this, when you're walking in the light and sins are confessed, you're able to follow what Jesus guides us to do here in humility, but there's a confidence that comes from the Lord. Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee, or for our purposes, we could insert there the hypocrites flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Not bold in their own strength, bold in the Lord, confident in His truth. They're bold like a lion. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. Some will say, that man is arrogant, that woman is arrogant. They're They'll put other terms to it, but there is a reality that when you are secure in Christ, sins are confessed, you're walking the light, the Word of God is your light and your lamp. There is a confidence, a humility, a simplicity to your life, but you don't back down. You don't have a need to. If someone confronts you, you're not offended. If someone says, I have a alt against you, I'm concerned about this. If you're walking the light, and as much as you know that you're wanting to please the Lord, even if someone reveals to you something that you don't know, you're able to process that. You receive it in truth. But one thing you're not is running. Proverbs 15.31, The ear that hears the rebuke of life will abide among the wise. So many verses that speak to this. When we're living in this way, sins confessed, we're able to go to the sinning brother. And it requires personal examination. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Now, outside of some of these basic exceptions that I've given, friends, we need to know this. The Word of God is, in, is, is on us. We are commanded by Christ to seek after the sinning brother. We covered in message number one, I'll do it briefly, what qualifies as sinning? Well, just to give some off-the-cuff examples, 1 Corinthians 5.1, very practical uh, public sin in the life of the church that must be dealt with was incest, a, son, a stepson living with his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 5.11 describes immorality, covetousness, idolatry, reveling or slandering, drunkenness, a swindler. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20 refers to false teaching. Those who would come into the church and knowingly go against what the church statement of faith says, the scriptures say, and say this is what we believe God's word to say. And you come in, and it's not just disagreement, but you're intentionally sowing false teaching. Uh, Titus chapter, uh, first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 describes dealing with those who will not work. And the implication there is, is that they won't provide for their family, and they should. They need to be dealt with. This is sin. Titus 3, verses 9 and 10 describes a factious or a divisive man or woman. These are those who sow discord, those who whisper, those who divide the church. They're factious in a myriad of ways, both through commissions and omissions. 
One other example, just quickly, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. We could describe it as the sin of abandoning uh, the assembly. You abandon the church. You don't come under the shepherding care of the elders, under the authority of God's word. The first step of church discipline is even before all this, and it's just being under the authority and the ministry of the word. And so an individual abandons that. They drop off. They backslide. Any number of terms that we could describe it, it would warrant we need to go to them. Uh, All of us, and I'll get to that incumbency in just a moment, that authority, but what we see here by these examples is sins of an action, sins of action, sins of the heart, sins of the tongue, sexual sins, dishonest sins, sins that assault character, lack of self-control. Jesus says, verse 15, if your brother sins, go to him alone. What should our attitude be as we go to them? Well, there are some Christians who love confrontation. I would just say, while there are some, there are very few, most people hate confrontation. I would submit to you that the reason most Christians don't obey Matthew 18 is they can't stand confrontation, but they can stand it enough, again, as we said earlier, to talk about it, but they just can't quite deal with it the way that Jesus gives instruction here to us. There are those rare individuals, they, they love it, and that's why they cannot be leaders in the church. One of the qualifications of an elder is that he not be a brawler in the sense of a fighting spirit. Uh, someone who relishes these moments, someone who, give it to me, I'll go deal with it. Almost like the security guard of of the church. Jesus says, go to your brother. If your brother sins, go to him alone. What should our attitude be? Just very quickly, 1 Thessalonians 3.15, to warn them as a brother. We're to show genuine love. In fact, this is the context of the passage. God has already expressed, expressed here, Jesus has already expressed the love that he has for his sheep and his disciples, his other sheep, are to express the same love that God has for his sheep, that Jesus has for the sheep that he died for. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Our attitude should be one of genuine love a perfecting love, not a love that pampers like the Lord's love. It should be a love that reflects God's love. God doesn't overlook sin. God doesn't ignore gross sin. Listen, we are called to genuinely love them, and that love is expressed by going to them. Again, I don't think I could say it enough. Again, Paul's right there. If it bothers you enough to talk about it to anyone but God, you need to go to the individual Not your spouse, not your children, not your mom, not your dad, not the elders. You go to him alone. You don't shadow post on social media, and I address that because that's the spirit of the age. We don't go to people, but we'll send all kinds of innuendo posts uh, about it. We'll dress it over here, and we'll dress it over there, and we'll do it down here, and we'll do it up there, but we don't go to If it bothers you enough to talk about it or unrest your spirit, and you can't forgive it according to the biblical record and what Scripture guides us on, then, friend, you need to go with a heart of love, a heart, secondly, that is ready to forgive, to be eager to forgive. In fact, the passage that follows this one is on forgiveness. How often, Peter says, okay, this is kind of hard, this is difficult, so how often are we to do that? And we'll see that passage comes next. But with a heart that's ready to forgive. A third example of how do we go to them is in gentleness and humility. Galatians Chapter 6, verse 1 addresses this. Not in haughtiness or condescension, 
not going to them saying, I can't believe you, brother. How could you do such a thing? How could you abandon your family? Uh, I can't believe you, sister. Why are you such a malicious gossip? Uh, I can't believe you. Why would you steal? I I can't believe you. Why would you abandon this church or the assembly? We don't go to them like that. We go to them with a a heart that is loving and ready to forgive and gentleness and humility because we don't ask dumb questions we already know the answer to. We know why they do such a thing. We're all sinners who stand in need of the grace of God. And Paul says, apart from the grace of God, take heed, beware, lest you yourself also fall. There's a sense of humility to the whole process that must guide it. We need the infused love of God to be given to us, to see them as God sees them, with the goal that we reclaim them in gentleness, in humility. The spirit of humility demands that we show, in fact, you could say respect, for even the categorical differences. For example, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him, notice here, as a father. And you could also, by implication, say, do not rebuke an older woman. The idea is just how you do it. It's not saying you can't do it. It's saying how you do it is important. You speak to an older woman like you talk to your mother, hopefully in a respectful way. Like you do your father in a respectful way. If it's a brother that's closer to you in age, as a brother, or as a son, or as a daughter. This familial guidance, this relationship guides how we talk to each other. In fact, some people would say, I can't do what Jesus says in verse 15, go to a brother. And they say, the reason I can't is they're older than me. That's no excuse. Go to them as you would your father. Stop, think for a second. How do you, how do you talk to your dad? I know there's all types of qualifications and presuppositions, but the idea is a normal relationship with a normal son and a normal dad, father. And if you don't have one, well, you do. Your heavenly father, who is in heaven. How do you go to your heavenly father? How do you go to your mother? Yes, right, it's normal. You go to her, you can go to her, you can talk to her. And the same is for an older man, an older woman, an equal peer in age, brother or sister. Talk to uh, a member of the opposite sex, like a brother or a sister. That is your brother and sister. Talk to younger individuals, not as annoyances or little jerks or whatever you may say in the flesh, but talk to them as sons and daughters and grandchildren. Go to them with a spirit of love and humility, with a heart that is ready to forgive, and go to them saying, listen, I love you, and this is why I want to talk to you about this sin. Friend, I can think of so many times uh, in my life where people loved me enough as a kid growing up in the life of the church not to talk about me, and I'm sure they did, uh, but to talk to me. Um, I, I couldn't get away with anything. Uh, I had so many parents in the life of the church, and I thank God for that. I thank God that people loved me enough to say, you know better. You know the truth. And it wasn't just because I was a pastor's kid or anything different. It was They loved me as a kid. Um, I was no different than anybody else, and you shouldn't treat any other kids as distinguished based on who their parents are. You should speak to them in love and speak to them based upon they're the children, if you will, of the church or the older individuals as the parents of the church. So here, we, we've looked at when do we go? What should our attitude be? We here see the purpose of discipline. Secondly, Jesus outlines, we're going to move quickly here, the procedure that we follow. What is that process that we follow? Well, it's simple. It's not a 10-step program or a 12-step program. It's just, we just need the ability and the grace to have courage and love to go and obey what the Lord says. Here in verse 15, the first thing we see, it's a private confrontation. Notice the word alone. We're to go, we're to seek them out, and I would encourage you, do not do this in text form, in email form, 
Go and talk to the person face to face. Pause. Yet another reason why we have the problems, not necessarily here at Grace, at times we may, but I'm just speaking in general, the problems that we have if we do not go directly to each other. Let's not, let's not act like that our societal cultural moment is uh, doing really well at communication. Let's not act like there's not been major setbacks because of our instant abilities to shoot texts and instant messages. For practical things, yes. For just quick decisions and answers, yes. Just for the high buys, yes. For the quick, I need an answer on this, yes. But this is not to be done through a medium, a digital medium or technical medium. Friend, show that love, that meekness and that gentleness and that concern. They need 80%, I believe it is, of communication is nonverbal. And so when you send that text or that email, they're imposing all of their weaknesses upon your meaning in the digital text. They're reading it in every worse form, worse way. Is that fair? No, but don't text it. Call them. Go in person and ask to speak to them. Go, what Jesus says here, go alone. The idea here is this is a private confrontation. Discretion must be used. Be careful, but go to them alone. Now, I already know what some of you are thinking. What if it's a man and a woman? Well, discretion needs to be used. Come to them in the, in the public square or in the church service at, at the end or at the beginning or say, can I meet with you with your spouse? That shows humility and nothing to, nothing to be concerned about. Would you and your husband meet with me? Or would you, would you, my wife and I would like to meet with you. It, it may take some discernment or some discretion. If you're a boss and you're dealing with a, a daughter in the faith, or a sister, you may need to have your secretary there. Use discernment. Use discretion. I, I, and that's where you're going to need some of that. But the idea is, is that you go to them alone. It's something that is not public. It is something that can be done between you and them. The heart of the principle here is that it is to be private as much as possible. And so there's two possible results that Jesus gives. First is, if he hears you, if you go and express that concern and they agree that that concern is valid or they are humbled that, that they did not realize that their sin was taken that way. Or if the person has abandoned the, this is the corporate sense, moving from the individual sense to the corporate sense, the person has abandoned the assembly, and you go to them, and you appeal to them, and you visit with them, and he hears you, he says, you're right, you're absolutely right. Um, I thank you for loving me enough to, to talk to me about this. I'm going to give one example very quickly. When I came to Grace um, as the pastor, our policy is, is we remove names from the role of individuals who have abandoned the church over a period of time. And we went really long. I just knew that wisdom would call that, that we wouldn't do that quickly. There's an onboarding. And I needed to earn and learn and learn people's faces and learn people's names. And so the elders guided me through this. We discussed this and we said, we know this is our policy, but let's be wise about this. There are a number of individuals that, that I haven't met and I don't know who they are. Let me try to take them out to lunch. Let me try to go to their home. Let me try to meet up with them. And one of those individuals was, was an individual, that's all I'll say, and they had fallen off the tracks. And we were at the point now where we're about to send our letters. We, we're not able to really connect. We're just saying, hey, we love you. We want you to know this, but the next action of our church is to remove you, remove you from our role. Please know that we love you. We'd love to talk to you about this. And I only got, we sent out maybe six or seven of those letters, and I got one response from the letters a phone call from an individual, and they said, thank you for loving me enough to do this. I know your attempts. We, I know that you care about us. This is what's been going on in my life, but please do not remove me from the fellowship. I will work at it, and I want to do better. And there were real reasons why the obstacles were there. And 
it's just a beautiful thing when someone tells you, thank you for loving me enough to do this, to go through the processes. Thank you for loving me enough to say, uh, but I don't want to be removed from the church. I want to be a part of the church as much as, as is possible. And so that's just an example. It's a beautiful thing. If he hears you, if she hears you, you've gained a brother. You've re- reclaimed the, the, the brother in Christ or the sister in Christ. If he owns a sin, if he recognizes it, if he repents, if he sees his sin in light of Scripture and he turns to the Lord and thanks you and, and is reconciled to the body or individually to you, or if there's been a misunderstanding and things have been cleared up, a logical, reasonable explanation for what has happened. You thought one thing, but another thing actually happened. The, the, the wisdom is, is in going to the brother or the sister and talking it out through them. Here, Jesus says, if they hear you, you have won your brother or your sister. Your responsibility is done. It is now. You are now to forgive the brother or the sister and to let the issue go. When when the person responds in humility and repentance, that's where it ends. Again, I'm going to give just a few examples to where you wouldn't let it go, but that is the principle, you let it go. One is if, if it is a very public sin, the sin is well known. Maybe an individual serves in a very public way. It's, it's hard. I don't want to give tons of examples because I don't want to alienate half the congregation. Say, well, that doesn't apply to me. and This doesn't apply to me. Well, good. Okay, that doesn't apply to me. But you get the idea. There are some sins that the, the, the whole town knows about it or the whole church knows about it. It's been done publicly. Even though the brother and sister repents in private, listen, they need to repent publicly. It's, it's a public thing. It may apply to not only a public sin or it may involve a, a third person. And while... You forgive them. There's other people that were involved and that you you say, now we need to go to them and get their forgiveness. We need to make this right. So while you may forgive them, it ends there. There may be other parties involved. That would be an exception. One other exception, if it involves a leader in the church, maybe a disqualifying sin, maybe a sin that can't be ignored as according to Scripture, even if that pastor or that elder, that deacon, the teacher, people who have positions in the church, even though they're repentant and, and saying, I'm wrong, you're right, please forgive me. But based upon the calling that they have, even though their sin is forgiven by the Lord and, and by the people offended, sometimes the matter needs to be brought before the church. But generally speaking, apart from those caveats, when the brother responds, he comes, friend, it is to be forgiven, the list needs to be shredded, and the matter needs to be forgotten. More about that as we look into the doctrine of forgiveness. Here very quickly, Jesus gives private confrontation, guidance, and instruction. Then notice in verse 16, a private confrontation. A private confrontation. Not only a private confrontation, but now a private confirmation. You are to now bring, if that brother does not hear you, or that sister does not hear you, you are now to bring two or three witnesses. Again, people who are godly, people who are respected, people whose calling and their reputation matches their profession of faith. Notice verse 16, Jesus says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, so that every fact may be confirmed. This here is connected to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, that no accusation based upon a single witness could stand or would stand. So these witnesses may not necessarily be witnesses to the original offense, but they're now being brought into bear for a matter of record. And if it goes to this step, Three people now are aware of the the situation, the lack and refusal to repent. Counsel can be given. This can be the leadership of the church, but it doesn't have to be the leadership of the church. 
Here it could be fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, just simply godly people and witnesses. Then verse 17 says, and if he refuses to listen to them, so it gives us here a, a clear implication that the witnesses have now joined the first person in trying to reclaim this brother. They're, they're not just wallflowers or the sister. They're not just there sterilely taking notes. But no, they're involved with a heartfelt approach here. Verse 16 says, and if he fails to listen to them. In other words, it's not just the first person, but now this is, this is a group. A loving, what we call for our men's Bible say, a band of brothers or a sisterhood in Christ. And he fails to listen to them. For the second time, we see here that there are two possible outcomes. He listens and he repents, which is the goal that we want. Or he continues to double down or she continues to deny and persist in rebellion against the Word of God and against Scripture. And if this happens, very simply, there's a third step. That leads to number three, the place of discipline. Here, Jesus tells us to move from the private sphere to the public sphere. The private confrontation and the private confirmation has all happened there in the private sphere. And now comes the point to where it needs to be brought before the church. Although Christ does not mention the elders here, the clear teaching of the New Testament makes it clear that the elders are responsible for all aspects of life in the church. More about that this coming Wednesday, as I mentioned earlier, as we teach on that theme. If the elders determine that, in fact, that there is clear and biblical sin, they analyze the situations that's being brought to them. Steps one and two, private confrontation, public confirmation, these things have been followed. We are now at number three, where we must pursue public proclamation. Why is this? Why does it have to be this way, some may ask. Well, notice verse 17 says, And if he refuses to hear you, bring it to the church. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. The church now joins the attempt to reclaim the brother. As the situation is brought before the church, this is not the final step of excommunication. This is the third step before the final step that says, please repent. Please return again to the Lord. Here is the authority of God's word. Here is the plumb line of scripture. Here is the standard of scripture. And so therefore following an ever widening circle of how to deal with this situation. Now, in the New Testament, and I'm moving quickly here, there's one example to where this third and fourth step are to be passed over. And that may surprise you. But turn with me just briefly to Titus chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul gives a caveat that there is one particular sin that allows the leadership of the church, if you will, or the leadership is called upon to address and to bypass steps 3 and 4 in Matthew 18. The way we understand it. And in Titus, I'll give you a second to turn there. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Titus is in the pastoral epistles. And here, Paul addresses to Titus that evidently there were individuals in the church that were factious, that is to say, divisive. These are individuals that are looking for problems. Or you could say, problems follow them wherever they go. The fruit of their life is dissension or division or problems. And when that begins to happen in the life of the church, if the elders, the pastor, the leadership determines that there is a problem here, notice what Paul says in verse 9 and 10, but avoid 
Foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. These are generic issues that they, to stay away from. For they are unprofitable and useless. But notice here, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Knowing that such a person, notice what Paul says, is warped. This is a spiritual problem. They have a problem in their thinking and in their heart. This kind of goes back to there some individuals take even the things of God and they, they abuse them. For example, if you love confrontation, courage is certainly needed. It. We, we need men and women who can do it. But if this is something you relish in, this is your moment, that's a problem. But there are some people like that in that same kind of sister spirit who enjoy the attention that division brings. And the reason you would bypass steps 3 and 4 of Matthew 18, according to what Paul gives here in Titus chapter uh, 9 and 10, is that you're limiting this person's scope of influence, poisoning. What they want is a broader audience. They want more things. And so the authority is given to the leadership of the church to simply say, clearly warn the divisive man, the factious man of his sin. Reject a factious, or warn that man a second time, and after that first and second admonition, dismiss them, reject them, turn them out. And so it's within that leadership uh, discretion of the leadership of the church, knowing that individual, their personality, their growth and grace, knowing is this intentional or is it not intentional, in all those types of things, but the authority is given to bypass uh, this point here. So going back to our text, we could ask that point, why follow all of that? Usually this type of individual de desires to divide the church, wants to, to do that type of thing. So church discipline is to be reserved for the hard-hearted and the rebellious in heart, the refusal to submit to the Word of God and to the leadership of the church. By the way, I just want to remind us, as this is brought before the church, the goal is reclamation. All of church discipline is not a gotcha, enjoying the process, get out of here, or any type of abrasive or abusive spirit. The goal through every step of what we're talking about is to see a brother or a sister repent and return, like the prodigal son or like others that we see in Scripture, um, that, that, that we see the second chance and we see the mercy extended to them. It's a reminder to us that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a place where, like, just like our homes, we're repenting every single day. It's not, this is not a country club church. The church is not a country club. This is not a group where we show off and, and uh, just tout ourselves in a me-first syndrome, a diatrophy spirit who desires to have the preeminence. Listen, this is a place where the truth reigns. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The truth must guide. The truth must uh, permeate. The truth must be preached. But it is a hospital for sinners. And when that person repents, we're rejoicing. What is the response? It's rejoicing. When the prodigal son returns, the father's rejoicing. Our rejoicing needs to mirror the heart of the father, which is rejo rejoicing when there is a biblical repentance and humility, the owning of sin. And so may the Lord help us to see that and to call for it. Well, if this individual continues in sin, it leads us to our fourth and final point, and it's simply this. Public excommunication. Number four, the parting work or the parting act of, of discipline. Now, there's much we could say here about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul teaches on this in Galatians. He teaches on this in 1 Corinthians. But the reason this must be done is sin that is not dealt with, unrepentant sin, gross sin, rebellious sin, will begin to taint the church. It will spread, just like a little leaven will leaven and spread and leaven the whole lump. Now, I'm going to hit Paul's right here. 
this is where you will find out who true churches are and who false churches are. False churches will say this, we can't do verse 17, and here's why. That's judging. That's not being loving. No, friends, this is the very definition of loving. Number one, Jesus instructs us to do it. Just number one. But, but secondly, this is the purest aspect of love. It says we love you too much to not let this go addressed. We love you too much to ignore it. We call you to repentance. We call you to repentance. We call you to repentance. And now we come to number four, that parting work of the discipline process. Here in verse 17, going back to our text, Jesus says, if he refuses to hear them, the church, tell to the church, and if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now that may sound jarring to you, but here's what Jesus is saying. Here, first off, he says, let him be to you. I want to make this point very briefly. This is not just the pastor. In the Greek construction of this phrase, you, we simply say you in one way, but this is not just you all like in a generic sense, in a corporate sense, but this is to every member. In the Greek construction, this is literally addressing the church as a whole and each one individually. You say it like this, each one is responsible for all of us and each one is responsible for each of us. And when this point comes, there's not some who, when this point arrives, that get the green light to be the soothers, to be the ones saying, now listen, I know our church, and you feel like you got to apologize for your church. Now, we know, like sometimes, like good cop, bad cop type of thing, or like sometimes dads who undermine a mom's influence and leadership in the home, or a mother who undermines a dad's influence in the home and says, now listen, daddy can be a little firm sometimes. Listen, there's no room in the church, once you get to step four, for some members of the church to pacify the believer. They may say, but we've been friends for 20 years. Listen, I get it, but Scripture rules friendships. You may say, but listen, I, I understand that this is... The Scripture rules over our emotions, facts over feelings. And some people, and I've seen it, I'm not going to waste your time by giving you example after example after example. I've seen my father in the ministry be called all kinds of names, judgmental, unloving, just mean, hypocritical, because he would dare lead the church into such a point as this, and our church leaders and others. I lived it, and I'll just tell you, the only reason I'm in the ministry is because God's called me to it, because there's just no other explanation to it. I'll just stop right there. I'll just stop right there. But when this point comes, the parting of discipline, this is for everyone. This is for the whole body. This is for the membership. When the church is spoken in a collective voice, every Christian must respect that discipline. And notice what Jesus says. This is serious. He says, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why did he say it like this? Because his disciples would know that the tax collectors and the Gentiles were those who were living outside the kingdom. But we get the connotation in this. They have turned their back on the kingdom. Tax collectors in Jesus' day, by the way, Matthew, the author of Matthew, was one who was saved by grace. So here he is talking about, like, I should know. I was one, right? But they were Jews who sold out their own people for the Roman government. They were subcontractors of the Roman government, and they would go about collecting uh, taxes from their people, and the Roman government allowed them to extort above the rate and pocket anything that they wanted. Tax collectors were bad. Tax collectors you wanted to spew them out of your mouth. Tax collectors were traitors. Tax collectors sold out their people for money. They abused their own people. They turned their back on their people. And that's why Jesus says this. Listen, the individual who won't repent has turned their back on the church. You're simply recognizing reality and you're treating them 
with the reality of what they are. Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, he says this, Turn them out as one unto Satan. They may not be. This may be a real believer or daughter, but that's now the Lord's business. They're now no longer under your auspices. You now release them. And friend, continue to pray for them, continue to love them, but you're to treat them as one who has abandoned the faith. And that's the hardest part that takes courage and conviction and truth and love that many people cannot quite bring themselves to come into the compliance of the Word of God. I want to conclude this morning with this. I want to read the rest of our passage. I'm moving quickly here, I promise. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you, remember the context here is this one or two go in discipline, two or three go. The idea is, is where you are and where you're standing upon the authority of Scripture, you're following the word of instruction, where those two or three are gathered in my name, he says, I am there with you. Talk about confidence comes. How do we have the power to do this? I'm, I, don't, I can't do this. This is so hard, Lord. How do we do this? Confidence comes from a number of things, but one of the things it comes from is being supported. When you're supported and you can do the task that you've been called to do, you can do even hard things. Or church, you can do hard things because the Lord calls you, instructs you, and is with you as you follow this process. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them and will be there with them. Um, then he goes on to say, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he's, in verse 20, he says, For where two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Here what Jesus is saying is that the authority of those who follow his word, they have the power of, of God. They have the power of the word of God. They have the authority to speak into these issues. He's there present with them. He's with them as long as they are in accordance with his truth and with his word. Now, I want us to hit pause just for a second as we conclude. And I want to ask you this. This is the difficult, proactive side of church restoration, church reconciliation. We've titled this little part of Matthew, um, The Disciplining of God's Little Ones. Again, the context here is the little ones, the sheep uh, of Christ. I now want to flip the script and just simply appeal to the hearts and consciences of our membership. If you are not in the middle of a problem, you will be at some point. At some point, someone will come to you and relay something to you that you did and let you know that you hurt them or you sinned against them or you stole from them or any number of things. Um, they'll call you out on your gossip. They'll call you out on whatever. And when they do, I just want to remind all of you and myself that we are sinners saved by grace. There's a temptation when confronted to double down in arrogance, in offense, or defense. There's a temptation in all of us to do that. And I just want to say, when we're walking in humility, and we've owned the fact that we are those who are saved by grace, we've repented of our sins before the Lord, the chief evidence of that is we continue to repent. Repentance is a fruit of the Christian life. And we're foolish to think that we can go 60 years in the faith or however long we've been saving the Lord and never sin against a brother or sister in Christ and never need to say, I'm sorry. 
or never need to say, you know what, I've been completely insensitive. I ignore you in this matter, and you've expressed it, and whatever, you've attempted, and I've acted arrogantly here, or I've acted very insensitively here, or I'm talking about in minor things. Obviously, you could tell from the context. It is one of the most difficult things in the world for a brother or sister to go to another brother and sister. It just is. And when they do, thank them. Love them. Let them know that you are thankful that they love you enough not to talk about you, but they're talking to you. They want to be right. They want to be reconciled. I'm not asking you to own something you didn't do or anything type, type of like thing. I know there's nuances, but I'm just talking about the basic bottom line, everyday living uh, of the church. May the Lord give all of us grace and humility to recognize that we hurt people. Sometimes it's even more serious than that. It's flagrant, gross sin. And I'm not going all the way to that level, but even if confronted with flagrant, gross sin, may our response be like David, I repent. When, when the Nathans of our life come to us and say, you're the man or you're the woman, may we humble ourselves and say, my goodness, I have been blind, if that's true. May the Lord just give grace for a biblical response. What is the goal? Here's the goal. It's not who is right. It's what is right. And the greater glory of God in all that we do is the most important thing. It's not me. It's not you. It's not him. It's not her. It's not who wins or personality arguments. It's none of that. It's ultimately walking in love, walking worthy of the calling that the Lord has given to us. Well, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we pray that you would take this message and that you would apply it. It's so pivotal foundational to the life of the church. And Father, we thank you that you give us very clear, elemental instructions to do it. Now, Father, would you give us the grace to do it? May our church continue to be one that is blessed because of its commitment to the truth, its commitment to love, the love of the brethren, the love of Christ, the commitment to maintain the bond of peace, the commitment to be unified in the advancement of your kingdom, which you continue, Lord, to preserve, just to put a hedge of protection about each one of us. Would you give grace and leadership when problems do arise? Would you give courage to the church, the individuals, those who need to go directly to the brother or the sister involved? Would you, Father, give direction and wisdom to our elders who shepherd our church so faithfully and lovingly? Father, we need wisdom regularly, constantly. And your word says, if any man asks of God, Ask of him for wisdom that he will give to all. And he will not make fun. He will not upbraid or correct or chasten. Father, you, you delight when we come to you saying, Help, I need help, O oh Lord. Would you give light and help and wisdom? May we continue to grow in this way. Humble ourselves to your truth and to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can you stand with us as we close with our God before us?